Hello and welcome to the 93 Talks, a podcast brought to you by the UK's largest network of state-educated university students, the 93% Club Foundation. Did you know that 93% of the UK's population is state-educated? This number is not representative of the university population and definitely not represented in the corporate world. It's our mission to rectify this and support those that make it to university. Here on the 93 Talks, we will bring you content with employers, successful professionals and community ambassadors. This is a podcast for students, by students. We are 92% Club. Serious about social mobility. Hi everyone, I'm joined by Sophie Pendler today, the founder of the 93% Club and who's currently a training sister at Herbert Smith Freehills, who will be joining us for a conversation on all things social mobility. Sophie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, happy to be here on our first podcast, how exciting. Very exciting, I'm happy to have you. Um, so yeah, we're going to go through a couple of questions and just get your take and your perspective, um, which I think will be very valuable to our members who are listening. Um, so my first question is, what was your initial motivation for creating the 90% Club in Bristol back in 2016? Yeah, so, God, it feels like such a long time ago now, 2016. Um, I think the 93% Club or the idea of a state school society was really a long time coming in my mind, even though I'd only been at university for about a year and a half. I think it was really born from a place of, you know, I had these huge expectations of what I thought university was going to be like. And I saw it as this amazing opportunity where my life was going to completely change. And, you know, the feeling that I had after my first year and a half of university was just disappointment in terms of my feeling of belonging or, you know, my, my lack of belonging, for want of a better word. And I guess it would help just to give a bit of background about myself and where I'd come from to make it to university. So I grew up on a council estate in North London. It was a very rough council estate. My mum, my dad and myself, we never really had much. You know, for as long as I can remember, we struggled for money. And the stories my mum tells me, she would go to the shops and she'd buy like a bag of potatoes and beans and some sausages and like make it last for God knows how many weeks in like various different variations of food. Um, just because, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was such a luxury to be able to have, you know, different, different types of things to eat in the evening. And then added to that, and, you know, not to make this too dark, but my dad was, you know, a substance abuser for throughout his whole life. So when I was younger, he was a drug addict and, you know, very much involved in, in crime. Um, and then when my mum and dad broke up, he turned to alcohol. And that was really how I remembered him throughout my schooling life. And as a result of all of these factors and really just a bit of a crappy hand in life, uh, it just meant that we didn't really have a lot of money. And the people before me had never gone to university. I come from a very big Catholic family. So my mum was the youngest of four. My mum is the youngest of 14. So a very... T- <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, 14. So a lot of people in my family, but not many who actually went on to higher education or, you know, anything like that, really. The expectation was that you finished school at 16 and then you went and got a job. And when I was at school, which actually doesn't feel like that long ago, it wasn't compulsory to stay on until you're 18 to do A-levels. I think I was actually the last year that missed that. So... I could have left at 16 um, and done something else, but I decided to put myself through the torture for an extra couple of years. But going back a little bit, in light of the fact that I had a bit of a rough upbringing, school for me was such a sanctuary. Um, And I know it sounds like such a cliche because people find school really stressful, but for me, it was such a huge opportunity to have control over my life and be able to do something that wasn't dictated by my parents or, you know, what anyone was doing around me. It was my thing to sort of work on and my thing to really push forward. 
And I remember when I was younger, my mum, I remember my mum having this sort of like old banged out Rover, like this sort of brown, rusty Rover car. And uh, we, she would put me in the car at, like one evening, I think she put me in the car and we left our little like, not little, the big council estate, but you know, left our county, our humble council estate. And we drove around all of the big houses in the North London area. And yeah, these houses are really big. And my mum would, would sit in the car and she'd say to me, Sophie, you know, you can either have what we've got, which is nothing, or if you get your head down and you work hard at school, this is what you can have. You know, you can have these big houses, you can have anything you want. And my mum, even though she was brought up and, and very much in a very traditional manner and then, you know, left school, went straight into a job, she always wanted the best for me and always wanted to push me because she didn't want me to struggle in the same way that we had struggled our whole lives. Very emotional. But, um, <laughs> I, I, so, yeah, it's such a sub story. But uh, in secondary school, that was a huge turning point for me. And I'll, I'll talk about turning points a bit more throughout this podcast. But I remember when I was 16, I was old enough to work by this point. So alongside my A-levels, I got two jobs. I worked in McDonald's Monday to Friday. And I worked yes. in John Lewis. Um, Saturday and Sunday whilst doing my A-levels. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite a lot. And I'd have to get the bus to John Lewis as well, so I'd get on the bus at Borewood and it would take me all the way to Watford and it took like an hour and a half. But um, I really enjoyed it, to be fair. It taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about time management and stress management. And, Oof, stress um, management. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, was a, it was quite an interesting time. That was when I was 16, and I remember, and again, talking about turning points, whilst I was doing my A-levels, I was thinking about what I wanted to do long-term, and I'd always always had this weird inkling that I wanted to be a lawyer, and I think it was because I was never very good at maths. Um, I was, you know, good at the classic art subjects, so for my A-levels, I did history, English, and politics, um, and very much shied away from more mathsy, sciencey subjects. And I remember one day when I was doing doing my A-levels, this really small startup charity came into my school because my school was a semi-failing school. It got turned into an academy. The teachers were great, but we just didn't really have, you know, didn't have the resources. And it was mm. the only school in my area. So you got a real sort of, you know, hodgepodge of people. And it was, a you know, a complete mix. And in terms of class sizes, you know, the top set would have people who were getting used all the way up to A-stars. Mm. So it was just like a real sort of mix of people. And because it was a failing school, this charity called Access Aspiration came in. And like I said, they were a startup, but I think they only had three people. And they sat us down, you know, the people who were in the top set, because they didn't have the resources to do everyone. And they said, listen, what do you want to do with your life? You know, what do you want to achieve? And it had occurred to me that I had just, I didn't have a clue. Because I think when you're from a working class background, you very much always look you know at just what's in front of you you don't really have those long-term career aspirations because for me it was such a luxury to be able to sit there and like mull over what I might do in the future when I knew that in the short term we might not have enough money to sort of get us through the rest of the week so that for me was a really huge turning point you know having someone who came in and said you know what do you want to do with your career and it was at that point where I was like oh I think I want to be a lawyer but I have you know literally no experience in doing that <laughs> they're like fine what we're gonna do is we're gonna put you in to a barrister's chambers for the week and you can see what they do and so this charity picked little old me up you know 16 year old me who was just you know like had long pink nails all day had like a proper proper ethically accent and um put me into this barrister's chambers called brick court 
which is an incredibly prestigious um, commercial set in London. And it was, it was honestly one of the biggest turning points of my life, again, turning points, because I sat there and I, I spoke to the, the sort of mini pupils and the people who were doing it before me. And I realized that they had had all of these experiences I'd never, I'd never had. And walking around Temple and walking around London, it was like this completely different, separate world that I had never seen before. And I realized that I just wasn't equipped for it. And, and not in a bad way. I mean, in, in some aspects, it did, you know, make me shy away. It also was a hugely eye-opening experience because I had gone through my life in my school just being aware of who was in my little bubble and who was in my sort of perimeter. And it wasn't until I'd got to the Sparrow's Chambers where I was like, oh my God, um, you know, there's a whole new world out there. And actually, I'm not in a position right now where I can make it to this to this place unless I really sort my act out. Mm. So after that experience, um, which also taught me that I don't want to be a barrister. <laughs> it just <laughs> yeah, it just seemed like a very lonely career compared to being a sister where you actually work with people, but I'm not gonna go into that right now. Um I went back to school and I worked really hard and you know, I went to school early and I would get there sometimes at like six thirty in the morning because I knew that it'd be open because teachers were there. And I revised really hard. Um, and then I managed to become the first person in my school to gain straight A stars at A level. So no one had ever done that before. And through doing that, I got my place at Bristol. And I just remember getting those results. And I was like in floods of tears because I thought, this is it. Like, this is it. This is my moment where it doesn't matter where I'm from. It doesn't matter, you know, everything that's happened before. This is, this is my opportunity to actually go somewhere where no one knows me really and make something of myself. Yeah, and definitely. I think we all have that experience, right? Yeah, we all 100%. have that experience of going to university. But when I got to university, that was that was completely blown out the water. That was blown out the water. <laughs> there's always a but. You know, I, yeah, there was, a, there was a huge but. And, you know, when I got to... When I got to university, my whole first year was basically spent just having an existential crisis because, you know, people in Freshers' Week were like, oh, what school did you go to? Or, you know, do you know this person? And I was like, no, this is is such a weird, it was, I thought it was such a weird question for people to ask, ask what school I'd gone to. You know, I didn't realise that actually what I was witnessing were were these sort of, you know, social habits from people who had all gone to the same sorts of schools. Mm. And actually, this is how they socialise. This is... You know, they asked you what school you went to because they wanted to know if they knew someone from that school. But I just went to a crappy, crappy academy. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, what if they do know someone from my school? That's so exciting. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't until later that I realized that it was it was actually just sort of built into this general feeling of, you know, not belonging. And yeah, that really followed me throughout my first year of university. And I, I know I'm, this is a quite a long monologue, but I think it's really oh, we're loving it. Don't worry. <laughs> really important to to sort of you know have that backstory and, and bring it up to the current day when people feel like they want to join a nice super sang club because people don't realize everything that's gone on behind closed doors so i remember it got to march 2016 and i had just really had enough um i'd made some incredible friends at university but you know not a huge amount of friends and i just felt like i had met no one who'd had a similar experience to me who'd had a similar upbringing to me or you know like for example I would find myself in seminars and I would find myself unable to articulate my thoughts even if I had thoughts about the subject because I felt like I couldn't find the words to express what I was trying to say in Mm. a way that would seem 
intelligent and intellectual so it, it just got to the point where I was at breaking point and I was like you know I don't know if my mental health can do this anymore to carry on without fear like having this sense of belonging and you know at universities it, it can really feel like when you don't belong somewhere you, you feel like you're walking into a clique and, and you sort of you know you walk through the library and there's these big groups of people who are all talking about the same sorts of things and you're like I just can't I just don't feel like I belong um, yeah. and it's exhausting it's really exhausting so yeah I sat down on March 2016 and I was like I feel like I need to do this I feel like I need to just put it out there and say does anyone else feel like this or is it just me am I just going mental because there was also a lot of talk as well around this sort of private slash state school divide and there was yeah. so much talk about it and no one was doing anything no, no one was doing this thing yeah so I just thought, well, I know that I'm going to get some terrible backlash about this, <laughs> but I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. And I remember I got Canva up and, you know, made this sort of like rubbish logo. Um, I, have, I have no background in graphic design. I'm terrible at it. And <laughs> I made a Facebook group, like a private group, you know, which was called Nice Super Cent Club, um, University of Bristol State School Society. And I just put it on Facebook because that's how people communicated. Back in the day. <laughs> back in the day <laughs> yeah back back in my first year of uni um and I just said I've been thinking about this for a while and actually is there anyone out there who went to the state school or you know is from a working class background and feels like more needs to be done at this university to make us feel like we belong and yeah it's just really snowballed snowballed since then and I think initially it started out as like a, a bit of a cry for help you know trying to find some sort of sense of community and obviously now it's developed into, a, you know, a fully sort of like a service for state yeah. students where they not only get that sense of belonging, but they get a network and they get employability training. So, yeah. Um, Amazing. Amazing. A lovely monologue that I will cherish forever. We, used, <laughs> we were talking about backlash. So um, even in the run up to like setting up and founding society, was you hesitant and like, oh, I don't think I should do this? Or do you just like say, no, I feel alone. Sometimes when this might out there might feel the same way. So did that ever stop you from actually setting it up due to the criticism that you might have received at the time? Yeah, I think, I actually think it was the opposite. I think I didn't give it much thought when I was initially creating it. So I, I can't explain it. I just got this like burning urge to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I had this wave of creativity. You know, when you have those waves, you're like, oh, this is a great idea. Yeah. Um, and I think if I didn't act on it then, I probably would have never done it. So I just I put it out there really quickly and I think the original logo goes to show just how quickly I put it out there because it was terrible. Um, I've only, I've only recently, re, recently rebranded it. Um, so I put it out there really quickly, but actually it was it was the backlash after where I was like, oh my God, I can't believe how many people actually disagree with me. So um, we got a lot of people who are coming up to me and saying, thank you so much for creating this. I've felt I felt like I've needed this for a while and I haven't known, you know, I, I didn't know what it looked like and I didn't know what I needed, but actually this is exactly what I need. This is exactly what I want. And then you had people on the other end of the spectrum who, you know, went to private schools and <laughs> wrote, <laughs> wrote, think, yeah, um, wrote think pieces about me saying, oh, you know, you're creating further divides, you're, you know, you're creating more of a problem by establishing the state school society and, 
you know, this is going to create further problems at university and this is not the way to solve it. And actually, this is, you know, a lot of people were saying this is exclusionary to people who went to private schools. Interesting take. Uh, yeah, but I think that's so classic, right? It, you know, any group who feels like they've been marginalised by society, the minute you set up to try and service your own needs because mm. no, one is ser- no one is servicing them for you, that's when people actually care about the issue yep. and they start going, oh, but what about this and what about yeah. this? And it's, it's just classic, really. So, yeah, I had a huge backlash from that. But you know what? I think it's really... And to be honest, I'm not going to lie. I think other people have had similar experiences at other universities and mm. set up 93% clubs. But I think it's because class is a really difficult subject to talk about. And I think people don't like the idea of confronting the fact that they may have only got where they are by virtue of how good their education was or how much money was pumped into their education. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of it came from insecurity because I can guarantee some of the people that I was speaking to, had they gone to my state school or had they gone to any rubbish state school and not had all the money put behind them, I don't think they would have got the grades they got and I don't think they'd be at the university they were at. So, um, but, but, you know, since then it's not been, it's not been terrible. And I think actually a lot of people are way more supportive of it. And obviously as social mobility becomes uh, a more hotly talked about topic I think we're going to see a lot more support for movements like the Nice 3% Club and other social mobility organisations as well 100% 100% I definitely agree um, this is probably going to take you down memory lane but when you initially set up the Nice 3% Club back in 2016 did you ever think it would be where it is today um, you know across the universities and you know it's helping over 10,000 students was that ever in your mind or was it just like I feel like I'm out of place I'm not in touch you know my university um, did that, was that was that the ambition you had when you set up that it would be like nationally or was it just something at the time for local um, support and effort? I think at the time it was very much a local issue because there was a lot of talk at my university over this, you know, state private school divide. And like I said, when I initially set up, I was just doing it to try and find people who were like me, who felt like they didn't really belong at university and you know, needed that support um but it wasn't until the second year of its existence when a girl named Francesca messaged me and said I really want to set up in Durham would you mind and I was like oh my god no absolutely like like, please do because help me out (laughs) yeah it really resonated with people this feeling of this loneliness and not having that sense of belonging so it, it wasn't until that point where I thought actually this could become something a lot bigger um that being said when it was founded in Durham I was obviously leaving university and I was starting my law training and I thought to myself I'm not going to get too involved because I really needed to put myself first and the one thing about you know running a social mobility organization at university or otherwise or running any sort of you know issue-based organization where you're campaigning or trying to raise awareness and especially when it affects you personally and you are that person who is from like a state school you know you are working class it's really exhausting like it's really tiring because Mm. you feel like I I personally felt like I was constantly trying to justify the existence of the society and, and constantly trying to say you know we deserve to you know we deserve to be here this isn't needed and necessary and it actually meant that 
it was difficult to get along with a lot of the activities because you were too busy arguing with people about whether or not you should exist or not. So I very much took a back step for a couple of years and just thought I need to focus on myself because if I'm not in a position to, you know, get myself to where I need to be, I can't help anyone else. Um, and then obviously 2020 hit and that was a, that was a year in itself, <laughs> which I think, I think we all would love to forget. Although oh, it was I'm trying to. Year. Yeah, trying, trying to forget. Um, although fantastic year for the 90% club and together students across the country who had been the most affected by COVID and unsurprisingly they were all students who were working class or from a state school background who had said actually this isn't working for me anymore and something needs to be done about this and I think from then it was a bit of a snowball effect yeah definitely. so um you know people started setting up at one university and other students looked at it and thought that's exactly what I need. And I think the beautiful thing about the 93% Club and what I love watching is that every single branch of it, because it has its own independence and can do what it likes, it all looks different and it mm. really depends on, on the university. So for the universities that have, you know, a high percentage of private school students, a lot of the things they focus on, you know, are those, those issues such as belonging, acceptance, that feeling of making sure that people feel like they can be at university and, and be their authentic selves. Yeah. And then at other universities that have like a, a high state school student portion, what you'll find is the focus is slightly different and actually what they're trying to do is encourage employers to actually come to those universities and spend the money and see the students because sometimes employers have a really bad tendency and, and it is just because of resources yeah. to hand select a couple of universities and be like these are our targets this is what we want to look at and it means that really talented students who are typically from state schools at universities who may be slightly lower down down the ranks um get left out and so that's the focus for those universities amazing 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 um lots of just digest at the moment because yeah when i was sent up as a site i was like oh something interesting i want to take up um in manchester but i was in my final year but I was happy to do so because, as you said, everyone takes their own spin on the society in their own branch. And I think it's just about helping students, which is what the 93% Club is about. Um, so my final question for you is, looking into the future of your crystal ball, where do you see the 93% Club in the next three to five years, um, given the growth it saw in 2020? God, who knows? Who knows what it's going to look like? Um, so like you said, 2020 was such a growth year for the yeah. organisation. And we went from... A collection of student societies to a national charity which is you know how we're operating now so the way it works is that we have the 93 percent club foundation as the main charity at the top and we have a national committee who are effectively you know the what's at the board of directors the managing board of that um of that charity and then we have a board of trustees and then an advisory board of you know really talented professionals who give their insight and really show students what they can be doing to bring in employers and you know put on good events so I mean I never thought that would happen to start with and then you know we're operating at 35 universities which is absolutely incredible it, it's mind-blowing to me that you know if you think about it each executive has at least has at least 10 people per per committee yeah, in some per cases branch. some cases not no names but you know there's a bit too many committee members but it's all right <laughs> Yeah, in some, some cases, there's, I mean, I wouldn't say too many, but there's definitely more um, than the average. So we're looking at, you know, 
an executive of just under 300 students. Well, actually, well, more than 300 students. It's very um, bad idea. <laughs> given that, yeah, it, it keeps growing. I can't keep up with the numbers. And we're servicing more students than ever. So I think what we will really need to focus on now is just making sure that the services we offer really, um, you know, stays in line with that growth. So the more students that we service, we need to make sure that our the things that we provide are really targeted. And the great thing about the 93% Club is that we are there purely to service the students. Mm. You know, we're, we're a charity. All the money we raise goes back into um, back into the services we provide students. We don't pay ourselves whatsoever. Everyone on the advisory board, everyone on the trustee board um, does it completely free. The students do it completely for free. And it's just because we're all so passionate about it and absolutely exactly. love it. I mean, look at me. I've been around for like how many years now? Six years. People might need to say, you just need to move on and get our life. And I think the beauty of the 93% Club is really that it doesn't have a particular focus in that it's not, I'm trained to be a lawyer, but we're not a law-focused organisation. We're not, you know, a finance-focused organisation. We're not focused on journalism or whatever. We, we do everything. We try yeah. our best to ask our members, what do you feel like you need help with? And then we put on events to reflect that. So I think really the sky's the limit on what we can achieve but if I had to pick one thing it would be you know for us to be functioning and operating uh at, you know as we are as a charity but on a more sophisticated level and what I would like to to see is we continue to facilitate that feeling of belonging and I'm hoping that that will happen when we can all go back to university and you guys oh, can that day meet. that day <laughs> Yeah, you guys can all actually, you know, have that community feeling, which is, is somewhat lost in the virtual world. But really what we want to make sure as well is that every 93% club member, including the executive or just, you know, the general members, gets the job or the pathway that they're after. And that's what I'm really passionate about. And that's what, you know, that's the thing that keeps me up at night is making sure that we're doing right by the people that, you know, we, we aim to serve and... I think as long as we keep listening to members and as long as we, you know, keep moving forward and responding to things as they arise, I think we can achieve that. But ultimately, I think the best way of doing that is to set up some sort of training scheme or training program that really takes students from the start of their university experience to the end and fills those gaps mm. that you don't really get from a state school. So I'm thinking things like networking, you know, elevator pitches, all Oof. those soft skills that you don't learn when you go to, you know when you go to a rubbish state school oh. so um yeah i've got big ambitions and uh people usually need to keep them in check so no, it's, like it's a good thing to have big ambitions um but yeah sky's the limit um don't know if it's second but i definitely agree um when i graduate and i leave my <laughs> and i leave manchester i imagine two years oh of course ten thousand members in manchester alone um hopefully um but yeah sky's the limit um but yeah just want to say thank you sophie for that amazing discussion really it was really it was really motivating just to hear your thoughts and your backstory to why you set up a society why it was needed and i think it's you know it's helping students even today i'm um, in 2021 and hopefully will help students in the future um so yeah that's it for today's episode and thank you for joining us sophie hope you enjoyed it um see you all for the next episode yeah now. wonderful amazing <laughs> <laughs>